Welcome to episode 27 of the Green and Healthy Places podcast, in which we discuss well-being and sustainability in real estate and hospitality today. I'm your host, Matt Morley, founder of Biophilico Wellbeing Interiors and Biofit Health and Fitness. Today, I'm with Dr. Chichi Obuaya, head of the clinical board for The SOAK, S-O-K-E, in London a private mental health clinic that has arguably redefined this concept for an upmarket clientele in the post-COVID era. We discuss the cultural differences between UK and US in openness around mental well-being, the impact of COVID on our relationships at home and in the office, mental health champions in the workplace, why having an off-site venue for discussions around mental health is preferable to any kind of in-house solution, designing an interior space for mental well-being, the parallels with boutique gyms and private clinics in terms of uh, newly aspirational positioning, and at the end, how working on your inner game can make you a far more effective manager through the wonderful gift of empathy. If you like this type of content, please hit subscribe. My contact details are in the show notes, as are those for the soak, obviously. So here we go. Here's Dr. Chichi Obuaya in London. Dr. Chichi, welcome to the show. Pleasure to have you here. I'd really like to dig into yeah, your role as head of the clinical board for the SOAKs. Like, just talk to us a bit about what that since has involved so far and how you see it evolving over time. Really excited to be here, Matt. Uh, good to see you again as well after all these years. And uh, I'm a consultant psychiatrist. Uh, so I trained as a medical doctor, specialized in psychiatry, and I'm an adult psychiatrist. So I see anyone aged 18 and above with a range of mental health difficulties, including depression, anxiety, problems related to birth, uh, trauma-related issues, uh, some people who've had uh, difficulties with addictions. I'm the clinical lead at the SOAK, and the SOAK is uh, a behavioral health center in the heart of London. We're coming up to our one-year anniversary. And the whole premise of setting up the SOAK was really that uh, within the UK, uh, there are plenty of mental health professionals that people can see. But we found that there's still massive stigma around uh, mental health and accessing care. And we just wanted to ease that process for people by having a really high-quality service that has a beautiful environment uh, and really encourages people to come forward and um, supports that by offering them very good quality care uh, in an environment that is conducive to uh, promoting good mental well-being. And I think that really comes across in terms of yeah the space that you've you've created, and clearly that's one of the the key attributes. We'll, we'll loop back round onto that, but in terms of how you. The, the mix then of, of uh, resources on the team and the range of, of services that you offer. Presumably you each have specialists, uh, specialisms, but then there's, there seems to be this interesting sort of client service director role that might be perhaps not applicable, that's not common in every clinic. So how, how do you structure the team and how do you sort of allocate a specific uh, specialist to a client as they come in? Just talk us through that process. Yes, yeah, so our clinical model is a multidisciplinary one. I think we recognize that in private practice, you can certainly access a whole range of, of therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, 
um, it can be quite difficult for, for people to navigate through the system and to really understand who they need to see and what skill set that person needs to have. So most of us have um, a pretty broad range of um, people we would see with a, a vast range of conditions. Um, but within that, um, there are areas of interest. So for me, uh, I still work within the national health system and I see people, see people with ADHD, so attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. We have therapists who uh, have a particular interest in supporting people who have, for example, body image issues, who might have disordered eating, but maybe aren't quite meeting the threshold for a full eating disorder diagnosis. And I'd say generally one of the themes is that we're trying to be um, quite proactive and preventative. So um, a lot of healthcare services are set up to treat illness, uh, and that, that lends itself to seeing people when they're really unwell. And there's certainly a role for that, but we're trying not to offer that acute care, but to catch people before they fall into major difficulties. We have a broad range of child, adolescent and family services. So working with couples, working with parents who may have a, a child that's going through difficulties in their mental health. And we work right across the age span. So really from, from birth right through to, to old age. So the multidisciplinary model is key in that um, we meet on a daily basis as a team, uh, discuss potential referrals, discuss uh, clients who might be seeing a range of us within the team. And it's then bringing our different bits of expertise together to think about how we can holistically support people. As I said, we're just coming up to our anniversary. So there's still um, plenty of room for growth and we want to be able to offer a range of services. So thinking about nutritional advice, um, there are a vast array of, of therapies so we're really at the starting point and we want to add to the clinical team there. But you did mention the client services role. Uh, so our, our, our client services manager is really that, that glue, the go-to person um, that can help people to navigate through the team because it can be quite daunting for people. And the reality is that when people are seeing therapists, they sometimes don't know how to benchmark that. Uh, and to get a sense of what progress they're making. So uh, we're data-driven. Uh, we have outcome measures that we explore, and we try to be very goal-oriented. But the client services manager is the person that can think about some of the services we maybe don't provide, um, but can signpost people externally for that. And where there are challenges, where people do feel stuck therapeutically, which happens, it's not a sign of the therapy being of a poor standard, it, it just happens that sometimes you don't have the right fit with an individual therapist. That person can be the go-to um, to just explore what's going on and, and why the fit maybe isn't quite right and whether there are alternative options either within the SOAP or elsewhere for that person. So we really try to think holistically, systemically, so working very much with families and I think the multidisciplinary aspect is something that has often been missing within private healthcare. Yeah, that, that really resonates with me. Having been through uh, a period of, of about six months of therapy myself during the whole COVID and lockdown and just feeling that it was very much 
I was effectively uh, operating in a complete bubble. There was no third party to sort of bounce ideas off or to sense check how something was going. So the, what you've just described of having another person sort of not in the room, but just outside the room for when you need to say, look, is, is, is that normal or should do you think there's, is that fit not quite right? That would have been so helpful. And of course, having a, a beautiful space in which to physically, you know, connect with someone uh, in person rather than online. I, you've alluded to something earlier, just the idea that it's perhaps prevention rather than cure. And I wondered how you you feel as a, a Londoner if there is a, a, a change that's already happened or it's happening around acceptability of discussion around mental health, the idea of not waiting too long before you pick up the phone or, or walk through your front doors, for example, when you feel like something's reached a point where it's arguably not, not too late, but it's already become critical, but sort of, you know, in the US, we'd, we'd imagine, or we, as we understand sort of popular culture, certainly in places like New York, it's far more common that one should um, engage with these things almost on a sort of semi-regular basis, not just for six months, but perhaps sort of you know, semi-permanently. Just wondered how you see culturally where London's at in terms of this dialogue now with, around mental health. It's a great question. We're on the journey. We're certainly not at the level of uh, the U.S., uh, in terms of it just being really ingrained in the culture and something that wouldn't make you bat an eyelid if you and I were having a conversation and you said, oh, I've just come from my therapy session, that would just be a perfectly normal thing. Uh, the UK is still quite conservative and we might feel a bit awkward uh, if somebody said that in the middle of a conversation. We are getting there. There's, there have been massive um, public mental health campaigns trying to destigmatize mental health, uh, both within society and I think particularly within the workplace. I would say that the, the COVID-19 pandemic has forced people to have these conversations because guess what? It's affected people in every way you can imagine. And I think it's made the language of mental health difficulties much more accessible to people because they can understand when you start talking about grief, for example, which in British culture, we're not great at doing. People can understand it because it's it's actually affecting people directly or people that they know, um, given what's happening. And work has been disrupted for a lot of people. People have lost jobs. They've been put on furlough schemes. Uh, they felt that their jobs are under threat. They've been working from home, and that's caused stress. They've been working from home and trying to homeschool children, and that's difficult. So. I think the conditions are ripe for that conversation to move forward. It is moving forward. I'd still say it's a little bit too much towards the the reactive end, i.e. when people are experiencing difficulties, that's when they're accessing help. And our vision is that we'd like to support people who kind of think, you know what, I don't see anything wrong with just having some exploratory therapy just to take stock of things uh, even if there isn't externally what we might regard as a major issue. Uh, and I think that's where people are in the state. So I think we'll get there, but it's going to be a process. You mentioned the the impact of, of uh, yeah what's happened over the last year and a half on mental health in the workplace and the impact on uh, corporates, larger businesses, and how, for example, HR teams are going to have to, but you didn't allude to that, but I'm, I'm inferring from that, that there is clearly 
a need or an increasing need now for for there to be a, a wider conversation in the office. And I know that's an element of perhaps not your core business, but there is an element of that at the soak. So how do you as a, as a company or yourself personally, how are you engaging with the, let's say the business end of mental health? Because it does feel like that's suddenly become such an, a sort of critical piece now within our, our overall well-being and that how we how we adjust both to going back to work, back to the office, but also how we keep that dialogue open. And I'm just wondering how an outside organization such as yours can can help with that for for a business. Like how does that what does that look like? There's no one size fits all solution. I think that's the the key thing to understand. And uh, you use the word conversation. I think the key aspect is to be a part of that conversation and see where the conversation goes. The reason I say that is that different sectors, different businesses within those sectors are at very different points in terms of their recognition of the scale of the problem when it comes to mental health challenges and uh, also what they really want to do about those problems. So to give an example, I would say that at the... um, at the end of the scale that is what I would say, just dipping one's toe into the water, there are lots of um, mental health campaigns now across the calendar. We have Mental Health Awareness Week, which is often a focus for businesses. And those businesses may get in external speakers, and we've been part of those conversations. I think with any of these initiatives across a range of issues around social injustice and, and lots of challenges around the workplace, that really is the start uh, and it isn't enough on its own because all that really does um, is it raises awareness uh, and it gets people thinking and and ultimately businesses need to decide what's best for them, but we try to support that process. And at the other end of the scale, we've had really good engagement with companies that massively want to change their culture and um, that could look like having... um, mental health, um, first aid training, having um, champions across the organization, having um, a culture of supervision, which creates opportunities for conversations amongst peers, amongst colleagues, through which discussions around mental health, again, can just naturally flow. So those are some of the workshops that we offer to corporates. Um, And it really just depends on, on how much time, effort and resource they want to invest in that. One of the really interesting things has been to just observe from the outside what different corporates do. And I'd say that things have moved in a, in a healthy direction um, over the last sort of five to ten years. One of the things I would say is that a lot of corporates felt that the, the right solution was to bring a lot of these services in-house. So they think about well-being, uh, and it, it does require a broad well-being strategy, but that might include uh, offering uh, GP services or psychological therapy services in-house. We've been very explicit that we sit outside of organizations, so we like to work with them, but we have a, a fantastic space here. And what we find is that um, there can be reticence from um, employees about accessing services in-house. Amongst senior leaders, they see it as too much of a reputational risk. And amongst more junior colleagues, there's often a culture of competitiveness. And they find that 
they're worried about their job security if they're accessing the mental health suite on on um, floor X within the building. So often these these initiatives are well meaning, but they don't really um, quite cut it in terms of people really accessing them. And often people will, even in very well resourced organisations, seek external help because they're more comfortable with that. So we want to get to the stage where um, businesses really understand that and they're able to engage with us um, in in that fashion because often the employees want to do that and we're positioned more where maybe closer to where people live and it might be convenient for them to access us uh, in this increasingly fluid working environment that people have at a time that suits them in an environment where they're more relaxed and we've put in some features to really um, to bolster the, the client's experience and that's probably going to work better for them, we feel. Yeah, I'm with you. You mentioned the mental health officer role and um, it's come up on my radar having done some work with a, a real estate developer in London on their ESG uh, strategy, so environmental sustainable governance. And it's now... You know, part of that remit, um, so if you have a pension fund putting money into a project and a real estate developer doing the work, they're now having to do an annual report on their ESG. And part of that, part of some of the credits at least, go towards how you look after your staff. And part of that is having a mental health officer within the team and having some kind of an external resource. And I just thought that was an interesting combination because... The role of the mental health officer is to identify a problem and and get that person to, whether it's pick up the phone, send an email, but pass that person on to the experts. And I remember thinking that makes total sense, not trying to resolve something themselves, but having the right person on the end of the line and and really just joining the dots so that that person feels comfortable, in this case, for example, talking to you guys. So I think that leads us then into the idea of having a space, a physical space that is not the office, but you might get there having been recommended via your corporate, your employer. You then rock up to the soak. And from what I've seen, like that space just does not look like anything I've seen in terms of mental health clinics, private mental health clinics. You've really changed not just the aesthetic, but I think on some level the game in terms of rewriting the rule books of what it what it should feel like and, and look like when you when you go for one of these sessions. So for those who haven't seen the website, can you just sort of describe the type of environment that you have there? I mean, there seems to be sort of Scandinavian influences. There's vintage furniture. I mean, it, it's like a it's like an interior design showroom as much as anything. It looks beautiful. Absolutely. I think you're spot on. And, and that is all by design. Um, I certainly wish to take absolutely no credit for it. My role is to focus on the clinical work. But our founder, Marion Medine, had a vision to not just talk about destigmatization, but to evidence that by normalizing this process. So we've talked about the fact that we want people to be able to access care in a way that really feels normal. But the problem she identified was that the environment, and we've got some of the best clinicians in the world in London. I think New York's up there, but London is about as good a place to practice psychiatry, psychology, anywhere in the world. But if the environment just reinforces the fact that you feel unwell, if it makes you feel sick, if it reinforces that view that you're a quote-unquote patient, then are we really helping people? 
And as you said, when you go around a lot of hospitals which have fantastic clinicians, practitioners offering really high quality level of care, the environment just lags behind. And so we wanted something that really um, made people feel nourished. And the design features, I think, um, tick the boxes in that respect, but also to be aspirational. And Mariam uh, also talked about her inspiration for that. So lots of people go to gyms now. We don't think anything of it. It's a pretty regular thing to do. And you just go maybe in your lunch break and you go back to work and it's it's not a big deal. But gyms um, have become uh, a bigger part of our lives. When they first really launched, there was something very aspirational about them. And so the aesthetics supported that view that you went to a gym and you just had that wow factor. And that's exactly what we're trying to do here. So you come into reception, it doesn't feel clinical. The, the sofas are really comfortable. You feel relaxed. It's a bit like being in someone's living room uh, and a nice one at that. And um, we have our clinical rooms. Uh, but one of the things about seeing a mental health practitioner in London is that uh, we tend to be very busy. So you leave your session and then you're back out onto the main road and you get on with your day. But actually, we wanted to make people feel that they weren't being kicked out of the building and they had that time to reflect and also just to not feel rushed, uh, particularly when they're talking about some quite challenging issues. Uh, so one of the key features uh, would be the pods that we have. And these are spaces next to the therapy rooms where you can just sit back uh, very comfortably. Um, you can read books. You can uh, just have some time in a darkened room to, to reflect on your session. We have some um, evidence-based um, technology that supports people. One of these is Alpha Stim, and that's a device that delivers a microcurrent to your earlobes. It's a small device. You put it on for anywhere between 20 and 60 minutes, uh, and it has evidence for supporting people in improving um, their sleep and also in reducing anxiety levels. And it's going to be uh, approved by NICE, the National Institute for uh, Care and Excellence, in the treatment of generalized anxiety disorder. So we have those devices, and it just means that it's a, a really broad, um, comfortable experience. It's also really important because uh, we see a lot of young people, uh, and they have parents. And so we're able to, to give something to the parents when they're hanging around, often quite anxious, they can use our pods. Uh, and I did say that we think very systemically. So that's thinking about the family as a system, and uh, we don't just talk the talk. We're able to to do that by by linking uh, the building to the therapy directly. It reminds me of um, some work I did in the past around uh, with a hospitality client, and we were looking at the guest journey. So, rather like a customer journey, identify this pain point where you, you're checking out of a hotel or resort, and you know the holiday's over, your weekend's over, and guess what? You get slapped with with a bill, and then you're sort of just uh, spat out onto the street again, and we're like, "Well, how could we? How could we soften that? Because actually, we'd rather sort of smooth the transition out into to the real world again after after their stay." And it seems that you've you've applied some of that same almost sort of hospitality level thinking to great. You've just been through a therapy session, and you know you might be feeling a little vulnerable. 
you might not want to just go straight out into the into the hustle and bustle of London street again. So creating that sort of third space between the outside world and, and the therapy room and, and allowing someone just to just to chill and to sort of smooth that transition across just seems yeah, it's 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 bang on and very innovative, I think. But also just going back to um, your example, it's about recognizing who the client is and we've done some work around that as well. So yes, the environment, broadly speaking, allows people to have a really great experience, but we also need to understand who our customers are. And so we wanted an environment that had these soft features, um, but to, to say it very bluntly, one that isn't feminine per se, because we have a lot of male clients. We know that men are not great at talking, generally speaking. Uh, there's been a lot of work um, in the public domain around getting men to talk about their mental health difficulties. So they're a big target group in terms of this whole destigmatization process. And being in central London, we know that um, a lot of our, our male clients are going to come from a corporate background. So we wanted to make sure the optics weren't suggesting that we were some sort of hippie or, or new age type service. So we wanted soft, but also very professional. Um, and uh, I think we, we strike the balance just right there. So if we then follow that thread a little further, like what would you say are typically the, let's call them red flags, but the, the markers then for someone the the steps that happen before they pick up the phone or walk through your front door that what what should we be looking out for for example someone you know in a corporate environment is it if they're not getting a nudge from someone by their side a family member a colleague you know what should a should we be looking out for in terms of cues that perhaps you know talking to someone and engaging with a therapist at this point is the right step and almost a necessary step. Like typically, what, what are the main markers for that? I think it's important to recognize that there are a broad range of mental health conditions. And one of the traps we sometimes fall into as psychiatrists when we're asked this question, we think about the, the more severe end. Um, so I do see people with really severe depression, um, uh, people who've experienced uh, significant trauma, uh, even people who might have a uh, psychotic illness. Um, and we, we tend to go for that, but there's so much in the middle that we miss. And I think your question speaks to the person that, that might be undergoing significant stress over a period of time. It might be work-related. It may have nothing to do with work, and it, it could be very much to do with their personal circumstances. And so... It's a lot more uh, ill-defined, and we know that stress affects people in many different ways. But in keeping with the idea that we want to get people maybe before they present with a severe depression, I think it's understanding some of those themes around stress and, and how it manifests for people. So the sorts of concepts I, I'd want to get across would be um, pretty um, high-level and uh, we might talk about people who are thriving. And it's just as it sounds. It's when you've got that spring in your step. You're very outward focused. You feel energetic. Um, you're paying pretty good attention, broadly speaking, to exercise, your, your nutrition. You're engaged with friends, family, colleagues. And you've got a, 
I don't like to talk so much about work-life balance. There are people who have very busy jobs, work long hours, but you're paying attention to the things that, that give you replenishment, a sense of energy and enjoyment. I think particularly in the current context, burnout is one of the key aspects people need to be looking out for. And that builds up over a period of time where there's that loss of attention to the things that give one a sense of rejuvenation and replenishment. And at the other end of the spectrum, we we might think about this concept of languishing. And it's just as it sounds, you know, the energy levels are down. You start to become a bit withdrawn from colleagues. You're just not quite on top of things at work. And one experiences significant stress. And one of the things we're mindful of is that people can experience this cliff edge experience where they're functioning outwardly for a period of time. But where stress is building up, it can hit you very quickly. And uh, the cliff edge term comes from the fact that you can very quickly go from outwardly functioning to really not functioning very well at all. And that can have significant implications within the workplace, but of course, beyond that as well. Do you think there's there's interesting discussions around performance um, in the workplace? So how perhaps someone sort of in the, in the C-suite or an executive in a, in a large corporation and the idea of rather like a, an athlete having a coach, uh, there might be one for their a strength and conditioning coach, they might have another one who's their mental coach. If, if we assume that a, a high-performing executive or indeed anyone, any professional who's, who's at the, trying to be at the top of their game, do you think there's a case to, to argue for there being someone on that team uh, once we open up to the to the idea of having a bit more than just a personal trainer, but perhaps someone, whether it's a life coach, that there should be, or potentially there could be someone on that sort of on that uh, yeah advisory board who's who's if you like looking after the mental health side, even if there are no clear markers that there's something wrong. Or do you think it's is it a case of waiting until something goes wrong in a sense? Certainly not waiting until something goes wrong, and I'm biased, so you may guess that my answer is going to be yes, it would be a great idea. There is a but. I think it's really important, and we've thought about this as an organization, to be very clear about what the role of that individual or team would actually be. And um, there are psychologists who who work in in corporate organizations and may be termed um, sort of performance coaches or psychologists. We've been quite careful to be clear about what our perceived role is. And that's why I said there are different conversations with different corporate clients. What we don't see our role in doing is saying we're going to come in and by engaging with our intervention, you impact the bottom line. If that happens as a result of uh, optimizing uh, employees' well-being, reducing sickness rates, people uh, being happy at work. Of course we want that, and that's amazing. But that's not a direct goal. And I think if I use the analogy of a sports person, and there have been a lot of sports people coming forward, you know, people who've um, uh, played at elite level, global superstars, who talk about the fact that Everything was geared towards winning and performance. 
and it wasn't actually looking at them as individuals. And there could be a lot of resentment that sets in for people um, who outwardly appear to have these amazing lives, living the dream, and it's far from that. And I think that's relevant to the workplace as well. So we're not here to just help the organization. We actually want to focus on the individual. So in the same way with an elite athlete, you want to look at them holistically and say, how do we support this person not to run faster or to put in more minutes in whatever team sport they're in, but to to really focus on their well-being? That will, of course, have the direct knock-on effect that they will be able to um, focus on on the challenge that they have, be it in the sporting arena or in the workplace. So yes, we want to engage in those conversations, but we want to do it with real clarity about what we're actually trying to achieve. And I think businesses need to wake up to that aspect. And it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but actually I think this is the way forward. Certainly from my, my personal experience, you know, doing this work, it became very much complementary to my meditation practice, so mindfulness meditation, which by itself was getting me somewhere, but I felt perhaps not wasn't yeah, getting me where I wanted to be. And doing combining the two with some therapy and the meditation practice was just this magic formula. I think the point I'd I'd ask people to consider is just by loving ourselves, we're able to give more love out to the world. And if you're managing people in an organization, if you're managing a team of 10, 20, however many people there may be, uh, empathy, and so much of that can come from being able to love and respect yourself first and knowing what your own triggers are, recognizing where they are and why you react or why you struggle to get into someone's head or why a particular person rubs you up the wrong way. When you're managing, that's a real problem because they're on your team. And somehow you have to you have to handle them every day and get the best out of them and, and look after them. And it's not about friendship. It's a fr- professional relationship. But still, I think, you know, this type of work that we do on ourselves has so much benefit, not just for us, the individual, but for those around us. And I think for me, that was almost this unexpected benefit, a sort of a, a knock-on effect that I was just felt able to connect more easily and in a more honest way with those around me, particularly people I was managing. And, you know, that. That doesn't get, that's not part of the sales pitch. It was just a very clear, tangible result of having done this work on myself, and it was completely unexpected. But that's exactly the point. You've articulated it so well. That's the point I was alluding to when I said at the starter level, it's get a speaker in to give a half-hour talk for Mental Health Awareness Week. What you described actually enables cultural change but it requires a conversation. We don't just have an off-the-shelf package for organizations, but what you have articulated there is where we want to get to with um, organizations. But we fully understand that um, it requires um, leadership. It requires a bit of knowledge about um, the mental health landscape, what different providers can offer, and where you want to get to as an organization. But that absolutely is on the money in terms of where we want to go. And in our workshops, that is what we, we try to do. We, we, we go through that journey with people in understanding a bit about their own mental well-being. And the key word is empathy there and just being able to 
understand what's going on for other people. But yes, the journey starts from within. Absolutely. Spot on. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I think we should end on that sentiment because it just feels it feels like a mug drop moment. So listen, Dr. Chichi Awai, thank you so much for your time. It's been great. We'll link to the SOAP website and to your profile on the, on the uh, episode notes. Thanks again. It's been great. Real pleasure. Thank you, Matt.